You'll probably recognize the name Richard Daly. I mean, no relation to me, I assure you, but uh, Richard Daly was the mayor of Chicago during the 60s and 70s and was really known as a pretty difficult person to work for. His speechwriter came to him one day and asked the mayor for a raise. Well, the mayor didn't like that kind of thing. And so he barked back, I'm not giving you a raise. I pay you more than you're worth already. It should be enough that you get to work with a great American hero like myself. And that was the end of it. Well, two weeks later, uh, Daly was scheduled to speak to a convention of veterans. And he was notorious for not looking over his speeches beforehand, and this was no exception. He barely had time to skim the first page before the introduction was done, and he jumped up to address this great throng of veterans. He, he, he said, um, he started talking about the plight of the American veteran and said, I want you to know uh, that I have a deep concern for you, that I have a special place in my heart for veterans. In fact, uh, I have a concern that veterans are not cared for in our culture the way they need to be cared for, given the sacrifice that you've made. And so tonight, I'm going to introduce a plan that will have city, state, and federal levels involved. It's a 17-point plan that will incorporate meeting the needs of every veteran in the United States. Well, by now, he had everybody's attention. Daily turned the page and read, You're on your own now, you great American hero. I quit. <laughs> now, I want you to know, when we come to Exodus 11, that's where Pharaoh finds himself. I mean, Moses has confronted Pharaoh nine times, nine times, uh, to let my people go. And Pharaoh has refused. And with every refusal, uh, God sends another plague with increased intensity. So Pharaoh is left to depend upon his gods, the gods of Egypt. But there's nothing but silence. And that's when Pharaoh discovers, like Mayor Daly, he's on his own. You see, the purpose of the plagues was not to punish Pharaoh for his cruelty. The purpose of the plagues was to answer one simple question. In fact, it was the very question that was asked by Pharaoh himself. Do you remember that question? In Exodus 5, it says this, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? And for the next five chapters, God has focused in on answering that question by sending one plague after another after another, to show Pharaoh the impotence of his gods. I mean, do you remember the plagues? Uh, there was the water he turned into blood. Then there were the slimy frogs that invaded the land. The, the clouds of pesky gnats, swarms of biting flies. And then there was infectious disease killing the cattle. Painful boils on the people, followed by horrendous hell. And then there was legions of locusts. And then finally, impenetrable darkness. So now we come 
to Exodus 11. And you're going to notice a change in terminology. I mean, the traditional word for plague that has been used in the previous chapters uh, has been the Hebrew word megaphah, megaphah. It means uh, strike or stroke. But now as we come to chapter 11, God changes vocabulary. The word used for plague in chapter 11 is nagah, which means stroke or seizure. So why the change? Why change from strike to stroke? What does God have in mind? Well, if you'll turn with me to Exodus 11 and beginning in verse 1, we'll discover together. Notice how it begins. He says, and the Lord had said to Moses. Now, we need to pause there. That little word had you see on the screen is in parentheses because I've added that. Now, you're probably aware that much of the historical material in the Old Testament is not always recorded in chronological order. I mean, this chapter is a case in point. God communicated verses 1 through 8 to Moses Earlier, and Moses won't actually leave Pharaoh's presence until the latter half of verse 8, where it says, And Moses went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So I've added the word had uh, to make it chronologically clear for us. So let's begin again. And the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring yet one more stroke on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and afterwards he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. So after three days of impenetrable darkness, God informs Pharaoh there'll have to be one more plague. And this plague will be more like a stroke. It'll be like a fatal stroke. In fact, this plague will be so devastating, so disastrous, that Pharaoh isn't going to just let you go. He's going to kick you out of the land. And so in light of this coming disastrous plague, this fatal stroke that's coming their way, God asked the nation of Israel to do something rather odd. Look at verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Now, does that hit you as rather strange? Can you imagine leaving church this afternoon, heading home, going over to your neighbor's house, knocking on the door. When they answer, you look your neighbor in the eye and say, do you have any gold you want to give me? How do you think he's going to respond? He may slam the door in your face. I mean, regardless, he's going to think you're nuts. You're crazy. But notice in the text, they aren't, just, they aren't there to ask for the gold. They're not to take it. They're to request it. And then to their, their surprise, it'll be given to them freely. But why? Well, God has granted His fortuitous favor to Israel. He has granted His divine approval to the nation of Israel, the Hebrews. I mean, see what I'm talking about? Look at the third verse. It says, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, every, moreover the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. 
So the past nine plagues certainly left uh, a mark on Pharaoh, but it certainly made a huge impression on Pharaoh's servants. And it must have made a huge impression on the people of Egypt. I mean, think back through the plagues. You remember the, the plague of pesky gnats. It was Pharaoh's uh, servants who said, this is indeed the finger of God. Uh, and then after the plague of painful boils, uh, remember the magicians, they were unable to stand before Moses because they were in such pain. And then uh, before the plague of horrendous hell, Remember, many of the people in Egypt, they listened to what Moses said and sheltered their animals, and they survived. And before the plague of locusts, the people of Israel called out to Pharaoh saying, please let the nation of Israel go from here. In other words, the people of Egypt were so impressed with the God of Moses and the Israelites that they were gladly turning over their possessions as a way to encourage them to hurry up and leave. But but what the people of Israel don't understand is that God is getting them ready for a road trip. Going to the neighbor's house and asking them for gold and silver would be like dropping by the ATM to make a withdrawal on your way out of town. That's what's going on here. So what are they going to do with all the stuff that they've been given? Well, I want you to know God has something in mind that no one ever dreamed of. You see, three months from now, they're going to find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is going to ask them to build a tabernacle there a place for His presence to manifest among the people of Israel. So they're going to need stuff to build the tabernacle out of. They're going to need furniture. They're going to need furnishings. They're going to need garments for the priest. There's got to be utensils made. They're going to need curtains. They're going to need cloth for the perimeter. And all of it, all of it is coming from the spoils of Egypt. You know, I find it interesting that Israel has nothing or very little. I mean, they are slaves. And suddenly God turns the table on them and gives them an abundance, gives them everything. So if you fast forward over to Exodus 36, it's time to construct the temple and God asks the people to give. And it's here we discover that the text says the people gave so much that they had to be restrained from bringing any more. Wow. What was, what was the impetus for that kind of compelling generosity? What, what moved them to give so liberally, so freely? Well, I think the people of Israel saw more clearly than we see today. They were willing to see what many times we're unwilling to recognize. See, the people of Israel saw clearly that all that they possess had been given to them by God. I mean, they had nothing when they left Egypt. But as they're heading out of town, Egyptians are just giving them stuff. They're giving them linens. They're giving them uh, clothes. They're giving them gold and silver and all sorts of material possessions. Not because of what they did, but because of what their God did. And so they saw clearly God had given them favor. 
and as a result had given them abundance. So when it came time to give, to build the tabernacle, they gave out of a heart that compelled them to give generously because they'd seen all that God had given them. I mean, someone has said that there are three types of giving in the church. Uh, there's grudge giving, uh, there's duty giving, and there's thanksgiving. Now, grudge giving says I have to. Duty giving said, well, I ought to. But thanksgiving says I get to. And the only way you can give with that kind of joy, that kind of thankfulness, is you must first consider all that we possess has been given to us by God. In fact, when you come over to the New Testament, uh, Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth, and he uses a different word to describe this kind of giving. Notice how he puts it. He says, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly, that's grudge giving. Or of necessity, that's duty giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. Better translated, joyful, hilarious giver. I mean, I love what Chad said last week. Is here at Horizon, we want to create an environment for people to give of the time, talents, and treasures freely. Not grudgingly, not dutifully, but joyfully, cheerfully, hilariously, out of great enjoyment. And the only way you can give with that kind of attitude you've got to recognize, first of all, God gave you everything you have. Now, the only one that's not favorably disposed to the people of Israel is, uh, is Pharaoh. You've got to remember, his, his heart has been hardened. So God tells Moses there's going to have to be one more plague. In fact, it'll be one pernicious plague, a life-threatening stroke, if you will. Verse 4. And then, whoops. And then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the, the handmill, and all firstborn animals. Now, historians tell us that the firstborn son in Egyptian culture was really symbolic of the strength and the virility of that culture. And he was the one through whom the family line would descend. So this plague is going to strike at the very heart of Egyptian culture. In fact, this plague will not only affect firstborn sons, but it goes on to say that it will affect firstborn of the animals. Now, why is that? Why would God have this plague impact innocent animals? Well, if you've been with us through the series, you realize that the Egyptians assigned many divine attributes to their animals. In fact, you saw the different symbols of the Egyptian gods, uh, many more than you see there, over a hundred gods, but most of them had human bodies but animal heads. And so, destroying the firstborn of the animals was a way Yahweh could show his superiority over the Egyptian gods. But it was really more than that. The firstborn son of Pharaoh was considered a god. Did you know that? 
He was considered to be the son of Amun-Re, the king over all the gods, over all of them. And so the death of Pharaoh's firstborn would cause everyone to understand that the God of the Hebrews was greater than not just the gods of Egypt, the king of the gods of Egypt. But here's the real question, I mean, as you read this, the one you wrestle with is, why inflict this plague on all the Egyptians when it's Pharaoh who has the hardened heart? And he's the problem, isn't he? Why impact all these innocent Egyptians with this plague? Well, it's a great question. And the first thing we've got to realize is the Egyptians were really far from innocent. I mean, it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 4 where God tells Pharaoh that you need to let my people go. And if you don't let my people go, then I will bring death upon your firstborn son and the sons of Egypt. Remember what he said in Exodus 4? He said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve you. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your firstborn. And we tend to forget that, golly, Pharaoh was intent on killing all the firstborn sons of Egypt. And he actually encouraged the Egyptians and enlisted them to do the killing for him, telling them that they are to take any Hebrew infant baby and throw them into the river, allow them to be crocodile bait as a way of controlling their population. I mean, can you see what God is doing here with this plague? He is attempting to communicate to Pharaoh in language he understands. But even in this, you can see the grace of God. I mean, you remember the Egyptians attempted to kill every Hebrew baby. But this plague will only impact the firstborn of Egypt. But secondly, you also need to understand that all the Egyptians shared in the enslavement of the Jewish people. In fact, you can find Jewish slaves in all levels of Egyptian society. So these Egyptians were anything but innocent. I mean, can you imagine if your children were taken to be a slave In an Egyptian home, abused, beaten, maybe raped, or even murdered. I mean, how would you respond if you knew you were bigger and stronger than the abuser? I mean, what would you do? And we discover in the text that the God of Israel, who is patient and abounding in loving kindness, gives the people of Egypt nine opportunities to change their mind. But thirdly, we need to also remember that the Egyptians were given a way to escape this final plague. I mean, God made provision for anyone who wanted to become a follower of Yahweh. And in the next chapter, uh, you can see that God made arrangements Uh, for the Egyptians to avoid the calamity that was guaranteed to come. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 19, it says, And for seven days no leaven shall be found in the houses, in your houses, 
since whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether, whether he is a stranger, meaning a non-Hebrew, or native of the land. And then as you read further, you discover that many Gentiles actually joined Israel in the exodus out of Egypt. Verse 38 goes on to say, A mixed multitude, meaning those who are non-Hebrew, a mixed multitude went up with them also as they left Egypt with the flocks and the herds. I mean, it boils down to this. I mean, who are you going to trust? The God of Israel or the God of Egypt who has time and time again been proven impotent or the God of Israel who has given the people of Egypt opportunity after opportunity to change their minds and follow the God of Israel. But but did you know death that night, the night of Passover, that death actually touched every family in Egypt, whether it was Egyptian or whether it was Hebrew? You see, that evening death, came to every firstborn son and every firstborn animal owned by an Egyptian. And that death that came brought a great mourning throughout the entire land. In fact, verse 6 even talks about it. It says, And then there shall be a great mourning throughout the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before or like it again. So the next morning when the Egyptians woke up, They discovered death had visited their homes, and as a result, they would have naturally um, called upon another one of their gods. His name was Anubis. He was the god of death. He was considered the protector, the guardian, the keeper of the dead. But on calling upon Anubis, they would have heard nothing but silence. And all that could be heard through the entire land of Egypt was the mourning of Egyptians for their loved ones that they had lost that night. But did you know death also visited the home of every Hebrew as well? There was not the death of a firstborn son or of any animal in the Hebrew home, but there was a death. There was the death of an innocent lamb. One little lamb sacrificed to protect that family that evening from death. To protect that family from what the Egyptians would perceive as Anubis, the god of death. And so I find it interesting that when you come you come to verse 7, And it comes time for Israel to leave Egypt. God says this, But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the God, that the Lord does make a difference between Egypt and Israel. Now, that phrase, shall a dog move its tongue, is a subtle reference to Anubis, the god of death. Notice how he's portrayed. He's got a human body, but what? A dog head. It's a jackal head. I mean, in a very subtle way, what God is saying is that against none of the children of Israel shall Anubis, the god of death, say a single word. And then the difference that you see mentioned there in verse 7, 
It's not in the way that death passed over the homes uh, that were inhabited by the Egyptians versus the homes inhabited by the Hebrews. It did not lie in the fact that one race was Jewish and the other, well, it was Egyptian or Gentile. The difference mentioned here is found in the blood of an innocent lamb placed on the doorposts of the home, causing death to pass over. Every home, whether Hebrew or Egyptian, that had the blood of the lamb placed on the doorpost, on the lintel, was protected and wasn't touched by death. And so Moses concludes in verse 8, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And then he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in great anger. Now, the, the Hebrew text indicates that Moses, at this point, turned quickly and left abruptly. Why the hurry, Moses? I mean, what's the big rush? Well, the day was drawing to a close. Uh, A new day would be dawning the 14th of Nisan, according to the Jewish calendar, would be dawning at 6 p.m. that evening. That's when their their day started. 6 p.m. that evening. Moses had to hurry back home to Goshen in order to slaughter a ewe lamb so that he could make preparations for his very first Passover. And we're told that this final plague concluded just like all the rest of the plagues. Pharaoh's hardened heart resulted. Look at verse 10. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh and Aaron did all that these did all these wonders before Pharaoh. I'm sorry. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. Now, three weeks ago, uh, we looked at the fact that um, Pharaoh hardened his heart in the first five plagues. When you come to plague six, you discover God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And if you're there at that time, you remember I mentioned to you there are two different Hebrew words for harden. The first is the Hebrew word kablade, which means to make hard or or, uh, unresponsive, like Pharaoh made his heart, own heart, unresponsive. The second is the word kazak, which means to firm or strengthen something that's already existing. That's the word used here in the text. So when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it's saying that God facilitated a process that Pharaoh had already initiated. But did you know God wants to facilitate a process in us as well? It's not a process to harden our hearts. But it's a process to keep them tender, to keep them supple and engaged with Him. In fact, I want to end by giving you four costly habits we fall into that can erode the tenderness of our heart if we're not careful. So what's the first costly habit? 
I'm going to give them to you quickly. Not dealing well with guilt. Guilt says, I feel bad about what I did. And if you live with guilt long enough, your conscience becomes seared and your heart becomes hard. So what's the antidote to guilt? It's confession. It's admitting what you did was wrong. Admitting it first to God and secondly to anyone you may have harmed in the process. So what's the second costly habit? Well, it's not dealing well with anger. Uh, Anger says, I didn't get what I deserved. And if you live with anger long enough, it ends up searing your conscience and eroding the tenderness of your heart. So what's the antidote for anger? Well, it's forgiveness. It's releasing the other person from the debt you feel like they owe you. But there's a third thing that can erode the tenderness of our heart, and that is greed. Greed says, I deserve all I get. And if you hang on to greed long enough, men and women, you will be dissatisfied and discover your heart is empty. In fact, I remember several years ago, my neighbor came home in a brand new car. I had no idea I needed a new car until my neighbor (laughs) came home in a new car. I remember he came down the hill in that new car, and suddenly I was dissatisfied with my car. I saw what I didn't have. And the more I focused on his new car, the more dissatisfied I was with my car. Now, my car was a perfectly good car. It was a fine car. But every time I saw him come down the hill, I became more and more dissatisfied with my just fine car because he came down in his new car. You see how greed causes you to be dissatisfied? You live with it long enough and your heart does not fill up. It's sucked empty. So what's the antidote for greed? Well, it's generosity. It's releasing your time, talents, and treasures for the sake of others. But there is one last thing that can impact the tenderness of our heart, and that's not dealing well with jealousy. Jealousy says, I didn't get what you got. Now, whether it's fame, fortune, uh, whether it's fun or family, whatever it might be, you focus on what your neighbor has and what you don't have, then what will happen is your heart will begin to implode. So what's the antidote to jealousy? It's thanksgiving. It's giving thanks to God specifically for all that you have and giving thanks for what your neighbor has. Now, forgiveness, generosity, and thanksgiving are all hallmarks of the way Jesus handled life when He was on this earth and became our sacrificial lamb. Father, thank You that You didn't come to this earth to make a name for Yourself. You came to sacrifice Your life, to be the sacrificial lamb we all need. May we never lose sight of that and all that you've given us as a result. And, and may those reminders, those things that you have done, compel us, move us closer to you, and compel us to serve you with joy, not just as a Savior, but as the loving Heavenly Father we sang about earlier. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you came prepared to give, offering boxes are out there in the hall, and we would love to put a name with your face. Drop by the hearth room and let us do that. We'd love to greet you down there. Enjoy the rest of this fantastic day, and we'll see you next week.